0: Good morning. Please find your way in God's precious word to Mark chapter 12. We're studying the events that happened during the Passion, passion Week. We're still in the temple. and As we have seen, things are changing with the coming of the kingdom. The, the prophecy of the end of the temple will be fulfilled soon. The axe is laid at the root of the tree that does not produce fruit, and the unbelieving religious establishment will soon be chopped down and thrown into the fire. We saw last week, last week we saw that Jesus has been teaching. He, he has been teaching with authority. And I thought about that statement for a minute. I was like, everything Jesus does, he does with authority, right? right? I mean, Jesus came to town, he cursed the fig tree, he had authority to do that. He went to the temple, he cleared out the robbers and thieves with authority. He began to teach with authority. He was teaching in the temple with authority. Everyone knew this. Everyone took notice of his teaching. And that is when the Sanhedrin, all the religious establishment, approached him. Guess what they had a problem with? His authority. So they challenged him. Challenged him, where where does your authority come from? Who gave you the authority to do what you have done and to say what you have said? You see, Jesus' authority did not come from them. They knew that Jesus has not been taught by their rabbis. They knew he had not gone through any ordination process. They knew that Jesus has no accreditation from anyone on this earth, so they ask, who gives you the right to do what you have done in the temple? Where did you get the right to teach the word of God in the temple? Take notice. They never wanted to know the truth about the scriptures. That wasn't on their radar. These religious leaders were only concerned about what? Authority. They wanted to keep theirs. And they knew that Jesus' teaching was challenging their power structure. The, The reason I say that they're not concerned about the truth is listen, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had the power to renew. Jewish faith, to renew the Jewish faith. They had the power to turn this big ship around and get it back on track. But they wouldn't either change the religion nor let anyone else do so, especially some guy from Galilee who doesn't even have any letters after his name. So they challenged Jesus' authority because they didn't want to be under his authority. This is actually a picture of what is to come. Jesus is king over all nations. All nations he is king. All leaders are under the authority of Jesus. Whether they choose to be or not, they are. And we can see in our text today that we have been studying, the kingdom of God is here whether man omits it or not. Christ is alive whether man wants to omit it or not. Jesus is the king, even though the Sanhedrin will not omit it. Listen, one day soon, the people will no longer answer to the Sanhedrin, as we know. They will be answering to Jesus and through the church and the church leaders that will be governing the kingdom. The temple is changing, no longer a building, but it's God's people who now make up the kingdom. The government is changing. No longer the Sanhedrin to guide and produce fruit, but it will be the church and the church leaders who will be guiding God's people to produce fruit. The Holy Spirit will live in God's people. They are the temple producing fruit for all to see and feed upon. And Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the ones who questioned his authority about that very fact. Now we left off last week with Jesus asking the leaders to answer a very simple question. And if they would answer that question, he would then in turn tell them where he got his authority from. He asked them, he said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe me? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. This is their answer. We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They were more afraid of the people than they were of the authority of God. They were more concerned about keeping their authority than to submit to the authority of God. And and we could see their hatred for Jesus and the truth really escalating now. They were mad that the people were praising Jesus. They were mad that Jesus cleared the temple and pointed out what the purpose of the temple actually was created for. They were mad that Jesus taught with authority and corrected all their man-made rules, and they were even madder when they had to admit in public, had to admit in public, in the temple, in front of all these people, and to Jesus, that they did not know the answer to this simple question. They are fuming now. They're really hot. Remember, they were seeking how to stop him from teaching. Then they were seeking how to destroy him and his teaching. And now they're seeking, they're plotting how to kill him. So they admit or they tell a lie and say they did not know the answer to the question whether John's baptism was of heaven or of man. So Jesus continues to teach. And, and this parable that we have for us is so perfect. Keep in mind what happened here. By refusing to answer the question, they are rejecting that Jesus and John the Baptist are, were prophets from God. Throughout their history, most of the most leaders of Israel repeatedly rejected God's messengers. And here, here at our, and this time, John the Baptist, a prophet sent by God, had already been killed, and Jesus the prophet, his death was not far off. And Jesus points that out in the following parable, the rejection of the prophets and the death of the son. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stones that the builders rejected, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So Jesus continues to teach the know it all Sanhedrin interrogators who were plotting on how to kill him. In verse 1, Jesus began to speak to them. He began to speak to the Sanhedrin. This is important because they didn't know where Jesus was going with this parable. But in his masterful teaching, he brings them right into the story. And at the end, it exposes their hostile intentions. In the end, Jesus will warn them about the consequences of their actions. Something to point out about this parable. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Was it to reveal the truth to ever, everyone? No, not at all. He taught in parables to hide the truth from the ones who had rejected him and his teaching. The religious leaders in Matthew 12 had said that Jesus was doing what Jesus was doing and teaching was under the power of Satan. You remember that? We studied that here in Mark. They were saying that his message was from hell. But from Matthew 13 and on, Jesus spoke in parables so they, the ones who rejected the Son of God, would not understand. So as we read the scriptures, we see that after Jesus told a parable, he would then take his disciples off to the side and explain to them what the meaning of the, ter- of the parable. But not so here. Not here. This is a unique parable, unique because the ones who had rejected him could and do understand what was said without an explanation. They know, and everyone around them knew exactly what and who Jesus was talking about. Another point about this parable. When Jesus taught in other parables, many times many times he began with the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would go on through the parable. And then he would teach. Not here. This parable is not about the kingdom. This parable is about judgment. It's about the judgment to come to the ones who have submi- who have not submitted to the authority of Christ. And then it ends with the kingdom. So let's dig into this great teaching of our Savior. When Jesus started talking about the vineyard, he had everyone's attention at that time. They were all familiar with the procedures when it comes to building and maintaining a vineyard. They, they all understood the agreements between the landowners and the tenants. Everyone knew this. They, especially the religious leaders, knew about, about all the rules and regulations when it came to the land, and the rights of the landowner, and the rights of the tenant, which is important when it comes to reading this parable, because I am sure they knew about Leviticus 19, 23 through 25. In the scriptures, God is giving instructions on coming into the land and planting a vineyard. So listen to what God says. He said this is how it to be, is to be done. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall, share, shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy. An offering of praise to the Lord. So the fourth year, you don't eat anything, you don't get anything for three years. The fourth year, you take the harvest and dedicate it to the Lord. You give it as an offering to God. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. So a farmer comes in, he gets all the rocks up, he takes those rocks, and he builds a wall around it, he builds a tower up around his vineyard, And he plants the tree or the uh, fruit trees or the vines. Three years, no fruit. Fourth year, gives the harvest to the Lord. Not until the fifth year does he he receive any fruit. Now, let's move and talk about the rules between the landowner and the tenant. In order for the landowner to retain his legal right to that property, the owner had to receive produce from the tenant, even if it was only some sort of vegetable that grew between the rows of the trees and vine. They were to receive something. So in this parable we have today, we can see that the, the landowner has gone away, which is, you know, he sent, and then he sends his people to collect the fruit. But the tenants refuse to give the owner what? Anything. Not even a tomato. So we see Leviticus put some light on this. They gave no fruit because the tenants wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves, legally. Legally, they wanted it. If the owner receives nothing, then the tenants will have a legal right to claim the property. So this also explains why the owner in the parable continued to send people to them, even though they were getting beat up and killed. You know what this boils down to? What we have here, it was purely a question of authority and ownership, authority and ownership. We just saw that the religious leaders questioned the authority of Jesus and Christ rolls right into a parable of of the vineyard which confronts authority and ownership, such masterful teaching. Something deeper to point out in our parable today. If verses 2 through 5 covers the three years when the fruit was not used, then it was the fourth year when the owner sent his beloved son. And what was the fourth year? This was the year when the fruit was devoted to the Lord. So it makes sending the beloved son on the fourth year even more meaningful. Those tenants were so evil at heart that they not only were trying to claim the property property legally by not giving the owner any yields from the land, but they were willing to go as far as killing the owner's son to make sure they would have full authority and ownership of the land. If the tenants could do away with the heir, they could have a clear claim to the property. They wanted to preserve their own position. And they were willing even to kill kill to accomplish their evil purpose. The keepers of the law, the ones that God was talking to that day, understood all of this. Now again, as Jesus was teaching for the ones who knew the scriptures, the words Jesus used should have rung a bell. When Jesus said a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, Isaiah chapter 5 should have come to their mind. Isaiah 5 is a well known chapter to the people of Israel. Isaiah is a prophet in Judah, and his prophecy essentially is this You are going to be judged. He is warning Israel about the coming judgment. Isaiah is warning Israel about the Chaldeans and ba- or Babylonians or, who, are coming, who are to come and be the instrument of God to destroy Jerusalem. They are coming to destroy the temple in that day. They are coming to kill the people and take the rest of them into captivity. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 5. You can turn over if you want, but I will read it here. Listen to chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O habitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then chapter 5 goes on with the list of sins that Israel has committed and the judgment that's coming. Now the word is clear here. Who's the builder? It's the Lord, right? Who's the, what, who is the vineyard? It's Israel. Now, if we go back and read our text uh, uh, today, knowing what we know, we better understand the meaning of this parable. We see God planting Israel in the land, blessing Israel, and providing everything for them to bring forth what? Fruit. But instead of bringing forth good fruit, they brought forth sour fruit, inedible fruit. They produced nothing of value. Even though they were provided with everything they needed to produce fruit, they did not. And you know what? That, that should take us right back to the fig tree. Everybody remembers the fig tree, right? Forever we will remember the fig tree. But you know, it, it did not produce fruit, and Jesus put a curse on it. Jesus then goes into the temple. The temple was not being used as a place to produce the spiritual food that it was created for. And so the same curse was put on the temple as the fig tree. And here, here we are with the religious leaders of Israel challenging Christ and his authority who has been given everything they needed to produce fruit, and yet they are not. And what do you think their outcome will be? Mm -hmm. Judgment. Judgment's coming. So you see how all this ties together? Do you understand why we preach line by line, verse by verse, so you can keep all this in context? It's so important to know the whole counsel of God. And so now that we have this information, let's keep that in our minds and go back to the temple and see how Jesus confronts the religious leaders with this parable. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit and a winepress, and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, it's not common for the owner of the land to be there and get everything started and get everything ready to go, then hire tenants to take care of the vineyard. He equips them with everything they need, as we saw in in Isaiah 5, and he goes on into other businesses or other responsibilities. It's a win-win for both sides. The people and the leaders in the temple that day are listening intently, not sure where this is going. Right. Jesus has their attention. He's bringing them in. Not sure where he's going, but so he continues. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenant to get some of the same some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they look at him and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Here's where you can see the eyebrows go up as Jesus is teaching. You know, what happened here is illegal. The, the owner is only wanting his contracted share. But instead of being grateful, they beat the owner's servant and send nothing back. So Jesus now really has everyone's attention in the temple that day because they're all thinking, that's not right. No one should ever do that. Verse 4, again, he sent them other, another servant and they struck him in the head and treated him shamefully. So the tenant takes the next guy, they bash his head in, they treated him shamefully, they, they smash his head, they insulted him, dishonored him in shameful ways, and they sent him out with nothing. Now you can hear the, the self-righteous legalistic chief priests, scribes, and elders talking among themselves at this point. You know, what kind of person would do this to an innocent person? What kind of people are these? Do they not appreciate the privilege they have been given? Do they not appreciate what the owner has done for them? Who would do such a thing? You could hear the chatter. Eyebrows up, you could hear the chatter. Verse five. And he sent another, and, and, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The other the, the, the owner sends another. And and Matthew says that they stoned him to death. And so with many others beating and killing with others. So he stoned him. This means that the owner kept sending people just to collect a little bit of fruit, and they're getting beaten and killed. So at the beginning of this parable, the people would say that the actions of the the tenants were unacceptable. It was illegal, and it's just unacceptable. Now they're probably questioning the actions of the owner. Why does he keep sending people to get their head bashed in and killed? What's wrong with him? Why does he keep doing that knowing what happened to the first ones that he sent? And just as the leaders think this parable cannot get any more strange, Jesus says in verse 6, he had one more left. He had one more. He still had one another, a beloved son. I guess his favorite son. Wouldn't send him. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, now it's gotten completely out of hand. Now these Jewish leaders must have been ready to scream out, not the son. Don't send the son. He's the heir. He's the future. He's the family. Don't send him. This is completely beyond comprehension. But in the parable we see, the owner thinks the people will give reverence to the beloved son. They will respect the beloved son sure they would do what they're supposed to do, but they kill him, and they don't even give him a decent burial. They just kill him and threw him over the wall of no respect for the son, the beloved son. The religious leaders are outraged. They can't believe this would happen, and so Jesus asked them a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus has brought them right into, right into this parable. They are feeling the words Jesus has spoken. And so he brings them in and he asks, what will the owner do? And we can look back at the parallel account in Matthew. Mark doesn't record, but Matthew says they answered Jesus. They couldn't help themselves. Matthew 21, uh, 40 and 41. Jesus says, where Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, listen, they answered just like that. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. They blasted the answer out. They couldn't wait. And as it went out of their mouth, I feel like they just wanted to take it right back in at that time. But before they could take it back, Jesus repeated their answer right back to them. He says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to another. They can't take it back. Jesus has brought them right in. Jesus repeated their solemn answer, their answer as a solemn verdict from the judge. It was like, You are are absolutely right with what you said. Don't forget what you said. Keep that in mind. You gave the right answer. You know, it's just—it it reminded me of when Nathan confronted King David about his sin. Do you remember that in Second Samuel uh, chapter twelve? Said, now there came a traveler to a rich man, and he was willing to take one of his own flock. He was, but he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's, anger, then David's anger was greatly kindled inside against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. He was like, Drop the mic. Same thing here. What should the owner do? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. And before they could change their answer, before they even realized the parable had been about them the whole time, Jesus just puts another block right in front of them. Jesus quoted what they knew was a messianic prophecy. He quoted Psalm 118, through 23. Look at verse 10. Jesus says immediately to them, Have you not read this, these, this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Everything changed now from the sons slash tenants of the parable to the stone slash builders of the psalm. It quickly changed. Jesus has brought has brought this parable full circle. He has now made the religious leaders the bad guys of the par- of this parable. And when Jesus asked, "Have you not read this scripture?" he was just piling on then because they they have stepped into full both feet. And these legalistic leaders were still fuming over the sins of the tenant. They were real good at pointing out someone else's sin, right? Not being able to see their own. They're fuming over what the tenants did and they couldn't even look at themselves. Sounds just like something sinners would do. The religious leaders were not ready for this. They were not ready to answer the question, just like they wouldn't answer the question before. They were not ready to answer, have you not read? This scripture that Jesus quoted was a key part of the Passover service. Remember, this is Passover week. All the pilgrims coming to the Passover would recite these verses as they came into Jerusalem. Psalm 118 was what they were shouting to uh, Jesus when he came in. Everyone knew these verses, and Jesus used these verses to tie the parable to what was going on and what was going to happen with the kingdom of God. Like the son who was rejected and murdered by the tenant farmers, Jesus referred to himself as the stone which the builders rejected, the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in a building. It was used as the standard to make sure all the other stones of the building were straight and level. And if the cornerstone was out of square or not level, then the whole building would be off. The cornerstone had to be perfect. There was no need to start a building if you did not have a perfect cornerstone. And as we know, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. But that's not how, the Israel's, how Israel's leadership saw him. They threw Jesus off to the side. They rejected the perfect cornerstone because, in their flawed eyes, Jesus did not have the right qualifications. What kind of cornerstone were they looking for to build the kingdom of God? They wanted a political cornerstone, not a a spiritual one. They wanted a military cornerstone, not a holy one. The stone was a well known symbol for the Messiah. They should have been looking for this stone. They should have seen it in Jesus Christ. But instead, when the stone was in their presence, they rejected him. Christ is the stone that the Jewish leaders rejected, but in the resurrection, Christ is the perfect cornerstone. Listen, Acts 4.10, write this verse in your margins. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, listen, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. As you come to him and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's quoting Isaiah 28:16. Listen, Jesus is building a spiritual house, as Peter says here. We are the living stones that he is using to build that house. Ephesians 2, 18. For through him we have access, access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The religious leaders on that day did not know at that time, even though they should have, they did not know that one day that rejected stone would indeed become the cornerstone with all the right qualifications, precious and chosen by God. They did not see that Jesus came to this earth as king to inaugurate an unending kingdom. They missed it. They did not see that Jesus in the unending kingdom would be built on him and his teaching. He brought in a spiritual kingdom. He is the cornerstone of a brand new building, and it's called the Christian church. Jesus' life and teaching is the church's foundation. He is the perfect cornerstone. Don't miss that. That's the point that Jesus is making. Do not leave here today not knowing that Jesus is the foundation of our faith. He is the perfect cornerstone that the everlasting kingdom is built upon. So recap the parable. The man that planted the vineyard is who? God. The originator and possessor, the owner of the vineyard is God. What is the vineyard? The people of God. Who are the tenant farmers? Who are the vine growers? They are the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to on that day. Stewards of God's possession, the people. Stewards of God's revelation, the truth. God puts Israel in the land, establishes them them in the land, gives them his law, and uh, the law at the time of Moses and Joshua. God gives them scripture, covenants, all they need, the whole sacrificial system, everything is laid out for them. He puts the stewardship of that in the leaders of the nation, in the priests and in the rulers. They were the ones who had everything they needed to produce fruit. And so we come to the big question. Who is the others? Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? Well, this is the final insult to those religious leaders. Who are the others? In Matthew 21, the account of this parable, Jesus says, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, shall be taken from you and given to a people, bringing forth the fruit of who will make it flourish and give back to the owner what he is due. Who's the new stewards? Who are the new custodians of the kingdom? Who are the new rulers in the kingdom? The answer, the apostles. The new uh, representatives of the kingdom. Those ragtag Galileans taught by Christ, not by the religious establishment. They are the new stewards of the kingdom of God with Christ being the cornerstone. The divine stewardship, preservation of the people of God, expansion of the people of God, growth of the people of God, the expression of God's will through divine revelation will pass to the first followers of Jesus. The stewardship of the truth is taken away from the leaders of Israel. The whole system is destroyed, and it doesn't exist today. From the beginning, Israel was to be a witness nation a testimony nation, a missionary nation, to reach all the nations of the world. God always intended to have a people, have a people made up of Jew and Gentile, and He now has it in His church. The stewards of the church are the early, the stewards of that church are the early apostles. That stewardship passes from the early apostles through their word to every faithful preacher of the word of God. God now uses the faithful preachers to preach his word, to bring forth the fruit. The church, the body of Christ, are the ones who are now called to bring forth the fruit. So how are we doing, church? How are we doing? How How are we handling the responsibility that God has given us? Are we letting our light shine? Are we loving God with all our heart, soul, strength? Are we loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? Can the world see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? He has given us everything we need to do what he has called us to do. We are part of the everlasting kingdom of God. We are stewards of that truth, and we are to share that truth with all nations.